This afternoon we turn to the book of Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus 26. And we're going to read the first 13 verses, Leviticus chapter 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last at the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves, and have broken the bars of your yoke, and make, made you walk erect. Throughout the scriptures we find this Motif, this recurrent motif of right and wrong, the path of blessings and the path of judgment. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, God challenged Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And similarly, in the New Testament, we find this motif again recurring, the path of right, the path of wrong. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it, Matthew 7 13 and 14. And here in Leviticus 26, we see God setting before Israel two contrasting paths and their consequences. The path of blessing and obedience and the path of disobedience and misery. Two distinct contrasting ways 
and their results. We want to consider this evening the path of blessing and obedience. The path of blessing and obedience. Verses 1 to 3, we find that the path of blessing is one of abstention from idolatry. Abstention from idolatry. Verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image of or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. God says to Israel. And we find that God's prohibition against idolatry is a matter that he repeats again and again. He repeats, he, he restates this. Uh, compare this with his earlier charge in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord. God would have his people Israel and by extension you and I understand, he would have us understand that the path of obedience, the path of blessing is one of undivided worship and allegiance to him as the one true and living God. And there are various reasons as to why God forbids the making of idols as objects of worship. The first is that such practice is offensive to him. And let me stop here to say this. This is something you know, but it bears repeating that whereas we today in the Western world, we today in our modern societies, we do not cast images, idols of metal, of wood, but we are still prone to idolatry nonetheless. Because an idol, as we have often said, is not just metal, an idol is also mental. Such practice is offensive to God. God, in Exodus 20, verses 3 to 5, himself declares, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth Beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now in verse 5 of this passage, that is Exodus 23 to 5, the Lord cites at least five reasons why he prohibits the construction, the erection of worship, of idols for worship. He tells us that, number one, he's a jealous God. God being the only God there is, God being the only true and living God there is, is jealous of his glory. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He will brook no rivals. Secondly, he brings judgment on idolaters. And then thirdly, to be involved in idolatry is tantamount to hating him. Whenever we put things before God, whenever we set up something that we value over and above God, over and against God, according to God, according to what he says in his word, to do that is to hate him. 
Now, in our hearts, in our minds, there might be no feelings of antipathy toward him. We might have feelings of animosity toward him. But the truth is, God says here, not to honor him by putting him first in our lives is to, in fact, hate him. And so anything less than exclusive loyalty to God, he will not tolerate. He makes it clear throughout his word that he alone is to be worshipped and served Any other person, any other priority, any other pursuit that takes center stage in our hearts and lives is an affront to him. Secondly, God forbids idols and idol worship, the making of idols, because idols distort and demean the holy, unique, and incomparable nature of God. Idols distort and demean the holy, unique, and incomparable nature of God. In a chapter that highlights the folly and emptiness of idols, Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 9, records God as challenging his people. This was what God, through the prophet Isaiah, said to Israel. He asked this question, To whom will you liken me and make me equal? To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship, they lift it up to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it on its place, and it stands there, it cannot move from its place. One cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Whenever we set up anything in the place of God or we use it to compare that thing to God, God is saying that we in the process demean him because God is simply incomparable. The moment we liken God to anything, even with the most sincere of intentions, we are guilty of idolatry. So let's bring this down on a practical level. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I don't worship the crucifix. I don't worship images, but when I have this uh, crucifix, when I have this chain, it helps me to concentrate, it helps me to worship God. Well, what's wrong with that? God says anything that we introduce into his worship, any representation of him, anything that we would bring to the worship of God that we imagine would help us in our worship of him, is idolatrous and is to be shunned. Why? Because it demeans and distorts the holy, unique, and incomparable nature of God. Whatever form they take, however sophisticated they might be, fashioned, and yes, however sincere and well-intentioned one may be in seeing them as aids to worshiping God, idols are a distortion of who God is. Third, God forbids idol worship. He forbids the making of idols because idols are lying, worthless entities. Idols are lies. 
idols are worthless entities. You'll find that in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, where Jonah describes idols as lying vanities, lying nothings, lying emptiness. And in what respects are idols lies? Psalm 115, they have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. They have mouths, but they speak not. Idols make promises or suggest to us promises, suggest to us blessings that idols cannot fulfill. You take it down even to money. We think that money is a be-all and end-all to life. We make money a God, and that is a lie. That is emptiness. That is vanity. Why? Because money cannot satisfy the heart. God forbids the making of and worshipping of idols because idols are lying, worthless entities, and they are, in the words of Acts 17, verse 29, formed by the art and imagination of man. They are formed by the art and imagination of man. That was why we have the is why we have that famed statement from Calvin where he says the Human heart is a factory of idols. And as such, because idols are lying worthless entities, because they stem from man's sinful imagination, as such they detract from the worship of the one true and living God who demands to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And then fourthly, God forbids the worshipping of idols. He forbids the making of idols because our relating to God is vitally hinged on who he claims to be as disclosed in his word. We are not to make any kind of mental conception as to what God looks like. We are not to have any kind of mental image, any kind of mental formulation. We are not to imagine what God is like when we are worshipping him. Somebody says, well, what's your concept of God when you're praying to him? How do you envision him? Listen, we envision him according to how he manifests, according to how he reveals himself in his word. The point then is that if any idea, person, or thing usurps the place of God in our lives, usurps the place of God in our minds, or if we contrive what we regard to be any kind of representation of the one true God to aid us in our worship, then we have made to ourselves an idol and such is displeasing to God. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So first of all, the path of blessing, according to the word of God, is the path of abstention from idolatry. I want to ask a question this afternoon, and it's a plain question. <laughs> it's not meant to be a rude question. What idols might there be in your heart, in your life? I ask myself that question. It might not be. Certainly we would say I would never have some kind of image that I'm bowing down to. I've never in my 
wildest dreams, I would never bow down to some statue. But here's the point. Remember this. Essentially, what is idolatry? Anything or anyone that takes preeminence in our lives is an idol. An idol could well be ourselves. Could well be ourselves. We pay more, more attention to ourselves than we pay to the living God. It's easy for us to be idolatrous without even realizing it. The path of blessing is one of abstention from idolatry. But second, the path of blessing, according to a text, is one of adherence to divine ordinances. The path of blessing is a path of adherence to divine ordinances. Look at verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And the language that's used here suggests that there's to be a, there to be far more than a legalistic adherence to such duties. God calls here for reverence. Not just observing, not just keeping his ordinances, but an attitude of heart that is reverent toward him. What the Lord desires is right attitude of heart, an attitude of hearty, conscientious attention to his appointed ordinances as they relate to his Sabbath and his sanctuary. You shall keep my Sabbaths. And that word keep carries the idea of guarding something very carefully, carefully so as to ensure its protection from harm or loss. What is God saying here? The way we approach his ordinances, the way we approach those duties which he has commanded us, we are to keep them, guard them carefully. We must not let them become commonplace. We must not treat them as though they are not important. God was calling Israel here to set great store by his Sabbaths. Notice here, Sabbaths is in the plural. So what he was referring to here, here <coughs> sorry, was not just the weekly Sabbath, but he was referring to the various festivals, the various feasts. For example, they talk about seven years. After seven years, they hold this feast. And uh, there are a variety of feasts, festivals that were observed, that were called Sabbaths, that God wanted Israel to keep these, to be faithful to them. Now, of course, you and I are not under the law in the, whereby we are going to be observing the rules that Israel observed, especially observing, let's say, uh, the, the Sabbath in a legalistic manner. What happens, we today do not worship on a set particular day as did the Israelites, uh, we, we, we meet as Christians on what we call the Lord's Day, celebrating his resurrection from the dead. The word of God commands us, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We are, one of the ordinances God has given us is regular attendance to worship. Regular attendance to his worship. And Israel was to treasure, Israel was to observe what God deemed to be very important, namely these Sabbaths. 
We have ordinances that we observe. There's the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. There's the ordinance of baptism. There are people who would say, well, some of these things are not very important. We can dispense with them. They, and of course, they're right in saying that they don't add to our salvation. But here's the point. Many times, people take this to an extreme whereby they just dispense with them as though they're not really important. God has instituted ordinances for his church to observe, and one of those ordinances is the Lord's Supper. Those who are saved must be baptized. That's what God's word says. But what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? It means that in recognizing the Sabbath to be the Lord's, we understand that he is the Lord of our time. He's the Lord of our time. As such, we do not turn the day into one of self-seeking pursuits and self-seeking pleasures. One of the functions of observing a day of rest and a day of worship is that it preserves us from the very thing that God was warning his people of in verse 1, namely idolatry. Because what does the Sabbath do? The Sabbath reminds us, this time of rest, this time of reflection, this time of worship, reminds us that our work and our, and our worldly weekly pursuits must not become primary in our lives. God is the Lord of our time. So when we set aside time like this, we are actually affirming God's place in our lives on this day. What does it mean to reverence God's sanctuary? It means to be mindful of his presence. Such that we come to him with clean hands and pure hearts. It's possible to keep a day, to observe a day, but not be reverent. It's possible to be in church, but not be reverent at heart. And then we think of the flippancy, the gross irreverence, that marks much of what passes for worship today. Note that at the end of verses 1 and 2, God grounds his call to worship him, to obey him on the fact of his being their sovereign divine Lord. In the third place, God makes it clear to Israel. He makes it known to Israel that the path of blessing, not only is it one of abstention from idolatry, not only is it one of attending to his ordinances, but three, it is that of abiding in his word. The path of blessing is one of abiding in his word. Verse 3. We see in verse 3, God calling his people to walk in his statutes and to observe his commandments and do them. Here's what he says. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. And by his, conditional, his use of the conditional particle, if, the Lord makes it clear that the blessings he enumerates in, verse, in, in the ensuing verses are all conditioned by obedience to his word. The suggestion being that his statutes, his commandments, are designed not only to bring people under his lordship, but to promote their happiness and well-being.
part of what it means to be prosperous as a people is to have the word of God at the forefront of our lives. And generally speaking, it is the word of God that keeps a society or an individual from moral and spiritual darkness. As Proverbs 29.18 declares, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. That is why there is no hope for a nation. If our nation does not put back in its rightful place the word of God and the place of God in the life of this nation. Where there is no word from God, where there is no prophetic word, where the Bible is closed, the people cast off restraint. So the path of blessing is one of abstention from idolatry. The path of blessing is one of adherence to his ordinances. The path of blessing is one of abiding in his word. Very quickly then, what were some of the many blessings God promised Israel if they kept his word, if they remained faithful to him? The first of these is economic prosperity. Economic prosperity. God promised Israel that if they would walk in his ways, if they would be faithful to him, he would bless them in their agricultural labors. That he would provide them all that is necessary for their sustenance, so the, uh, that was necessary for the maintenance of their food supply. Notice what he says there in verses 4 and 5. Then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full. Now, once again, these promises were specifically for the nation Israel. You and I today, as we have often said, cannot take from these passages in a wholesale manner these promises of blessing and say, well, they are for us today. Nevertheless, the truth remains that if a nation is not having God as first place in its life, in its consciousness, if a nation does not have at its center the word of God, then that nation can expect nothing but God's curse, God's judgment, can expect nothing but things like famine, things like want, and so on and so forth. Note also verses 9 and 10, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out the old and make way for the new. God promised his people economic prosperity. Of course, there was a time when this nation, like many other nations, was prosperous economically. And what is happening today? Today we are a nation in debt. Today we are a nation that is reeling, staggering, all because we have forgotten God, the source of our blessings. And we can expect worse if we continue in this path. Second, God, God promised Israel that if they would obey his word, he would ensure their national security. 
Notice verses 5 and 6, at the end of verse 5 on verse 6, and you will dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and sword shall not go through your land. We could spend hours on this. Suffice it to say that a nation that is forgetful of God, a nation that is unmindful of God, is going to be a nation that is going to be most vulnerable to its enemies. God was saying here that where his people remain faithful to him, he would see to it that they live in peace. The word for peace in Hebrew is shalom. The term connotes the idea of harmony, prosperity, health, and contentment. And in the context of verses 5 and 6, it includes the idea of security, national security, national peace. Here in these verses, God is promising Israel the blessing of peace. In our own time, in our own land, we are seeing a want of peace. There is social unrest. There is hatred. There is tension. Ever so often, every few days it seems, every few weeks it seems, there is some shooting, there is killing in our streets. And all of this, my friends, is a sign, I believe, of God's displeasure with us as a nation. Peace, freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety as regards the possibility of terror, be it from men or ferocious beasts, God was promising Israel. The sword, he says, would not pass through their land. Verse 6, that is to say, they would be spared from military invasions. And here is the promise of peace as it relates to the enjoyment of national security. We have time for one more. God promised, and with this one we close. God promised that if the nation, if his people were faithful to him, if they were obedient to his covenant, he promised that he would grant them military superiority. Verses 7 and 8. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And keep in mind, as we have been seeing in the book of Deuteronomy, the nations that Israel was going up against were nations that were greater in number than they were, greater in population, greater in military might. God was promising Israel here, listen, stick by me, be faithful to me, and you will know military superiority. What's the point God was making here? God was making the point very clear that success in battle, success in warfare, when his people were right with him, was not dependent on the size of their army nor the impressiveness of their weaponry, but it was all based on their relationship to him, their obedience to him, their faithfulness to him, their commitment to his word. And that's why you and I need to pray. That's why you and I, noticing and observing where we are as a nation, should be concerned. We should be praying, asking God to have mercy on us, to turn us, so that we might be spared from his wrath, his judgment.
Are we a nation given to idolatry? Yes, we are. Are we a nation given to turning its back on the word of God? Yes, we are. Are we a nation that is paying for it? Yes. And it will get worse and worse and worse until we recognize that there is a God in the heavens who calls men and nations to account. May God help us. May we as Christians remember our prayer responsibility in this regard. Pray for our leaders, pray for our nation.